0: latte please oh wait sorry uh this isn't i thought i was at a cafe ordering a latte but uh, but actually what's happening is that i'm talking about latte dock that's the next application in the list of kde packages included on slackware latte Doc. But, but before we get into the specifics of Latte Doc, let's talk a little bit about just kind of the concept of Docs. Now, as I've, as far as I know, and my, you know, I'm not a researcher, I, I don't, I, I don't, I haven't, I'm not a historian of com- computers, so I'm, I'm speaking of, I'm, I'm speaking of my memory of how things went, acknowledging uh, that a lot of what my, even my poor memory is uh, relating to, it, it's filtered through my, just my own attention, my own perception. So, could be a little bit wrong about some of this, but I, I think, if I recall correctly, early Unix desktops had, uh, by by early, I mean, like, you know, the 90s, uh, early Unix desktops had, had conventions that were doc-like, like places where you could, like, minimize icon, or uh, applications into an icon on your desktop, and then click that icon to relaunch or to, to re-show that application, that sort of thing. So I feel like that existed. And somewhere along the line, next step, the, the next step uh, desktop, which was the, the, the GUI desktop for, for the next step, computer in ext which of course doesn't exist anymore but it was it was a sort of an intermediary apparently aimed largely at uh, universities and so on a little computer that eventually became Mac OS 10 essentially uh, so I, I believe that the next step uh, desktop kind of used that concept of of a docking area where you could stage applications and and this was a this was kind of a new thing in a way because for a graphical desktop to have the concept of multitasking interestingly was not always a thing like, we think of a desktop as like that's being its primary purpose. Like of course, your desktop would, would know that you have five different applications open. Well, at one point in computer history, that that's not the case because at one point it wasn't really feasible for you to have five things open at the same time. Why would you be using up all your resources like that? You, you, surely you just want to go into an application and do your work there and then go on to your next application. So eventually, computers got good enough to where that was a realistic expectation. And and then you needed a place to sort things and put things and and sort of stash them while you switched over to a different task or whatever. So I, I think that they kind of started as an early unix desktop thing got adopted by next step and then eventually got m- merged into or pulled into mac os 10 which i think at least in in my in my experience was the one that really really made it popular like that that brought it into the public eye because apple does that right they they are a they're a marketing machine they know how to appeal to to the visuals and and they really make it look pretty and and fancy and they gave it fancy animation that they offloaded primarily onto the graphics processor and it it just it was it was an easy, cheap win that really, really worked. So well, in fact, that for me, for the longest time, like, a dock was kind of a foregone conclusion of a thing to install. Like, that was just the... that was the thing that you... that that was how you used a desktop. You had a dock. and And if you didn't have a dock, well, what was your other option? Your other option was to use a start menu and that sounded an awful lot like a windows thing didn't much care for that concept so weirdly the dock for me for a very long time and i think for a lot of people who come from the mac world a dock is you know it's 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 a it's a convenience that is your that's the place that you always go for the applications that you use the most but it is also weirdly and it almost hurts to say this now but i mean at the time it, it it is it was it is for some people still it is a statement it is an emotional statement saying look i am not okay with the conventions of a windows desktop and i don't want to feel like i'm using a windows desktop and i think that's okay as as kind of silly as it might be like it's not a logical statement right it is pure emotion it's just like i don't want to feel like I'm using Windows. That's okay. That's a, I can identify with that. I have become shockingly less sensitive to that in the past, I would say just the past maybe three years, maybe, maybe five, maybe to be charitable. But I I, I mean, and to this day, to be honest, to, as of, you know, now, today, I still put my KDE panel up at the top of my screen. Why do I do that? Because that's where I'm used to all of my important information being at the top of my screen. Is is it weird? Yeah, it might be weird. I don't know. So the dock which always, you know, for me always goes at the bottom of the screen. Now, once again, it doesn't have to be there. It can go on the left as well. Actually, the left is a good contender because a lot of times you're the bottom of your screen, you'll go down to do a horizontal scroll bar or something and you run into your dock and so it pops back up and that gets to be annoying. But um yeah, so the dock goes either on the bottom of the screen or the left hand side of the screen and that's how you interface with your desktop that's how you launch your applications it's how you hide it's where you hide applications to and show them and show them once again so, it's a it's a nice little quick convention. Now, is it underpowered? Yeah, yeah, it probably is, to be honest. Um, the dock doesn't exactly have a system tray. Is that what it's called? A system tray? I'm suddenly doubting that that's what the name of this thing is called. System, system tray, right? I think it's called the system tray. Where you have your clock and your calendar and all those little icons that represent all the different services that you're running. Now, Mac OS had a systems tray. I didn't call it a system tray, I don't think, but up in the right corner you you'd had you had a couple of buttons, and the power users of Mac and by power users in this context, I actually just mean anyone who installs stuff that's not by default just a Mac application, like some, some third party application, a lot of times those third party applications would stick something up in the the system tray. So if you were one of those Mac users who dared to look outside the Apple marketplace or, or whatever, you know, this Apple ring of influence, um, you, you had stuff up there in the top, right? I mean, even something simple like Dropbox would have an icon in the upper right corner. So, um, that was kind of a sign if you if you had stuff in the right hand corner of your Mac at least at one point I don't know what the scene is like today but at one point that was kind of a signal that oh, you're you're a daring computer user you use stuff that that didn't that that doesn't come straight from Apple or the the you know one or two key Apple quote unquote friendly uh, companies so Docs it, it's an important interface it was an important interface concept for a while. And I don't know that it is anymore so now that I've talked about docs for eight minutes um yeah, I don't know that it's a it's an important concept anymore. I don't feel like people are quite as precious about having a dock. Although, I mean, some people are, right? I mean, especially you know, the, I think the closer you are from your migration from one platform to another, I think the the harder you cling to to those those interface concepts. So I think probably people just off the boat from Mac OS right now, um, probably a dock would be a, a great little feature. Well, a Latte Dock is. C- included in Slackware which I didn't even realize until I hit the hit this place in the list I didn't realize I'd heard of Latte Doc as a as a, a dock for the you know the compatible with KDE Plasma desktop but I, I didn't actually know that it was like right here and it is it sure is it's right here uh, I hope that it doesn't launch every single time I start my computer now now there was a there was a dock like interface I, it was like a widget a plasmoid at one point or, or maybe that was just something that I used to do where you could take a panel and sort of shrink it down and you could make it into a dock like thing um but this is this is a proper dock like it it is a uh, an auto-hiding, if that's what you want it to be, an auto-hiding list of of applications that you have open, and you can cycle through them, and they get bigger as you roll o- over them, and you can click on them to bring them to, well, to either bring them to the front or to take yourself to them, depending on your settings. Um, It's got a little useless analog clock, which really I wish was a binary clock, and it's got a bunch of different settings. Like, if you right-click on, I think, any icon. No. Right-click on the clock icon. Yeah. Uh, you can edit edit, configure, configure latte, that's what I'm looking for, configure latte, and that brings up a preference uh, box, you can put the dock on the bottom of the screen, the left or the top or the right of the screen, you can align it in the center, left, right, or justify, you can cause it to what it calls dodge active, which means if there's a an active window that intrudes upon the space of latte dock, then latte dock shrinks to the, the, the off screen, and then If you roll over that area with your mouse, then it pops back up for you until you roll out and so on. Uh, You've got auto-hide, dodge maximized, windows just go below the dock at all times, um, on-demand sidebar, lots of different options. I haven't, I haven't tried them all. Uh, And then there's the appearance, so you can adjust the length of the dock, the background of the dock, the, uh, the items on the dock, how they behave when you roll over them. And you've got an advanced mode, that gives you even more options than, than that. So lots to choose from, really, really nice little dock. If you are, if you think you like the dock interface, then, then latte is one to try. Like, it really is. And, and it's it's actually one of the few sort of remaining active ones. I mean, I feel like there used to be a lot more docs out there, and they've all kind of started to dwindle, which, again, I think, I feel like the whole doc idea has become a little bit less urgent for a lot of people. And actually, all this talk of a latte kind of makes me want to go get a fresh cup of coffee. Let's go do that really quick. I know it's not time for a coffee break. Let's do it anyway. <laughs> Okay, enough of that. Let's move on to the next one. Layer shell cute. Layer shell cute is another Wayland library and Wayland apparently and this is I mean this isn't something that I know, it's just something that I've read, but Wayland from what I understand has this concept of a a surface and a surface is uh, sort of a, a broadcast to to the rest of the system that there are paintable pixels here. So, for instance, if you're creating an application, then you might, you, for, for Wayland, then uh, uh, for the process to of, of Wayland to display it, um, Wayland will take your application and assign it uh, as a surface. And, and again, that surface could mean that there are pixels that need to be painted in your system memory or it might mean that there are pixels that want to be painted from the GPU. Either way, that's a surface. But in order for Wayland to sort of understand what kind of surface a, 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 a collection of pixels are, they need there has to be some kind of um, differentiation, sort of of priority almost. So for instance, an application needs to be refreshed, Probably more often than your wallpaper. So a shell is how a surface in Wayland are kind of contextualized for, for Wayland. Uh, So this uh, Wayland, no, not Wayland, uh, layer shell cute are some, just some header files. And uh, it, it's, it, it, it apparently helps ensure that, that your application, your cute application is being assigned correctly within, within the surface uh, system of Wayland. The, The header files, there are two of them. There's window and shell, or I should say shell.h, window.h. And, uh that's annoying. I'm going to use more? No, I'm not, apparently. Most. I want to see this. There we go, most. Okay, so it's 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 just a layer shell, cute shell, underscore h. Uh, the thing to to notice here is it includes... Uh, oh, actually there's a couple there's okay there might be three but anyway so namespace layer shell cute sets the right environment so that shells created from now on use wlr layer shell uh, so that sets up the shell subsystem and then the window header file uh, identifies, for instance, the anchor top, which is, as you might expect, the top edge of the anchored rectangle. Bot- anchor bottom, the bottom edge of the anchor rectangle. Anchor left, the left edge, and then yes, anchor right is the right edge. So, I mean, that's describing us a, a square right? Which is what a surface is. Uh, This enum type is used to specify the layer where a surface can be put in. That's layer background equals zero, layer bottom equals one, layer top equals two, layer overlay equals three. The enum type is used to specify how the layer surface handles keyboard focus. So this is all like, you know, window management kinds of kind of stuff, or, or I guess, I guess it's more like, you know, well, I mean, it's a compositor is what it is. But I mean, that will play into window management, uh, and and sort of the your 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 window the way that windows are displayed and handled on your desktop that's what layer shell cute is those are the two uh, most important header files I guess there is that other one but um, I'm, I don't think it's important to look at that one so anyway if you're if you're programming uh you know for cute and you anticipate using wayland uh this is uh, something to include in your application probably next up is libgravatar libgravatar is uh if you're if you're aware of what gravatar is you can probably guess what libgravatar is it's a it's a library that makes it easy for an application to sort of ping gravatar and authenticate with it and bring in y- your avatar so gravatar is a project sort of almost like a um what's that one called open identity sort of almost or open id i think is what it's called um i mean it's not like open id but it, Gra- gravatar is it, it is a central place for you to have an i your your identity you you put your identity you, you you create an account there is what i'm trying to say you create an account and and that's your account your your human person account that that's you managing that account but in that account you could for instance have an avatar and then anything that uses that 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 can interface with gravatar when you sign up for that service like whether it's um i don't know a um like a an email provider or a social network of some sort or whatever you sign up for on the internet if if it interfaces with gravatar then you can tell it okay well here's where my Here's where my avatar lives. It's over there on, on Gravatar. I'll give you, I'll, I'll enter my Gravatar credentials here. You can authenticate, and then you can, you can pull the avatar in from Gravatar and use it here on this account. In other words, you as a person are, in theory, only setting up your representation on the internet, your graphical representation on the internet, once in one place in Gravatar. And you're using it across lots and lots of different places. And I... I... I do have a Gravatar somewhere out there, um, and I I feel like it's one of those things where very, very frequently, the service that I'm signing up with, when it interfaces with Gravatar, it makes it so seamless that I I am almost rarely even conscious of it, and it just works. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I think if more things could use LibGravatar, that would be pretty neat. LibGravatar is included here on Slackware, so if you are developing a... An application that 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 has a reasonable expectation of of interfacing with the internet, you know, not not everything I, I think needs to do that, but some things it, it kind of makes sense, and certainly the KDE Personal Information Manager or the PIM suite could use that, right? Because you're emailing people, maybe you want that 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 sort of like little you know your your recognizable avatar, whatever it is. Maybe it's just your headshot. Maybe it's just your face. Maybe it's uh maybe it's a graphic that you identify. With or, or a logo that you have assigned to yourself, whatever it is, you might want to have that available when you're sending an email and, and attaching uh, a little avatar. So libgravatar makes it really easy for for programmers to interface with Gravatar, and I think that's good. I think that's really useful. Actually, that's one of those really, really useful conveniences. You know, it's not it's not essential, but it really is kind of nice w- when you want it. It's nice that it's available. All right, next up is uh, libkcddb. cddb CDDB is a CD database out there on the internet where people enter the song, the track, the, the song titles and how many songs are on an album and the album, the the time of the songs, and the album length, and and the album artist, and, and so on, of all the different albums that they like. Of course, this was started for compact discs, which no one really uses anymore, and I say no one, acknowledging that there are several people who actually use CDs still. Um... But it was it was very you know it was it was the main vehicle of listening to music for for a little while so it really really made sense that it was a CD DB then um, now I, I don't know is it still does it still work as a CD DB maybe I'm not sure I mean a lot of things are recorded digitally ultimately so compact disc that doesn't really say anything about digital anyway um, it is a useful thing you'll you'll find uh, lots of sort of uh, lib what is, ID3 tagger applications are are some are, are things that frequently interface with or or can draw information from CDDB. This library, as you can expect, enables that. So CDDB retrieval now CDDB like like libgravitar I guess um, or th- rather lib libkcddb because this is specifically for the KDE framework. So, um and and that way, you know, you have you have a lot of the conveniences that the KDE framework provides you. So, this is not this isn't something that's necessarily general purpose. I mean, yeah, I mean it isn't. You you, you this, this this has this has dependencies on the KDE framework. So, if you're developing something for the KDE application suite, then this is the library that you would want to use to talk to CDDB. Sometimes talking to CDDB just means getting information from the database. But other times it also means submitting information back to the database. And all of that stuff is enabled through through this this library, and as you might expect it, it's a bunch of header files, a couple of SO library files, and uh, that's it. It's pretty straightforward uh, in a way. You can see it at work with KID3, which I think I, I'm sure I must have talked about by now because that's a KDE application, and it would have been included in the KDE package uh, software set, which is what I am talking about still, today. libk cd db. After that comes libk. wonder how many libk's we're gonna have. Compact disk, which is the CD playing and ripping library. Again, specifically for the KDE framework, which is significant because when you do that, when, when there's this kind of, I guess, unification or centralization of all of these libraries that's when you get those really really convenient things like there's a widget up at the, in your system tray and and it shows you all of your all of the different media streams that you could control from 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 your desktop. Which doesn't seem all that big of a deal, but I really, really appreciate this widget. Uh, I don't know if you know the one I'm talking about, and I don't really know how to describe it. I think it's literally just called, like, media... Yeah, it's called Media Player. It's a it's a widget that you'll get sometimes in your system tray on the KDE5 desktop on Slackware. And it, it's a little circle, at least on mine, it's a little circle with either a play or a pause button icon in it and you can click on it and it it does as i say it shows you the different streams happening and you might think well why would i have multiple streams of media going on my desktop well there are lots of reasons actually uh you might be on a um a meeting with someone and you have a media player uh, also uh paused to you know, that that could be playing music, but you don't want it to be playing music because you're just about to go to a video conference or a video meeting. So you can pause that player from from that widget. Or maybe you have, maybe you're editing video, but you've got a, a music player in the background and you want to be able to edit video for a while and then um, switch over to a different task for a little while. And, and at that point, why not start the media backup, your your uh, music backup? Or, or maybe you've got uh, a music thing, and and you decide that you're going to go to a, a, a video lecture on the internet, and because the lecture is just spoken word, then maybe you could have both of the things playing. You could have your media you know, your jazz music or, or ambient music, whatever you've got going, uh, sort of off in the background while you're listening to the, the, the person speaking to you in the, in the lecture or the podcast, whatever. So that's, you know, it's really nice to have a, a whole listing of all the different things going on on your desktop and the ability to control them, skip ahead a track, pause it, play it, whatever. So that's a, that's a widget I use a lot and libkc, I mean, libk compact disc will, you know, it hooks into that. And, and it does that by just being header files that you could use in your application. So you don't have to, you don't have to figure all that stuff out. It's just it's happening for you. Now, you've got other things happening too. For instance, you've got uh, the position of playback, like where, if you pause it, where where do you start back up? Or, or, or you know, if you want to check on, on the progress, then what should the widget display for you? And so, or not that particular widget, but whatever application you're viewing this information from, uh, how, what should it show you? How does it get that information? Well, a lot of that is here in libk-compact-disk. So it's useful, and I think not only is it useful, it is it is something that helps sort of bring all of the components together. And it saves programmers a lot of time, obviously. if you If you want to have a media player, and you don't want to exclude compact-disk playback, it's relatively easy to to handle because of this library. All right, let's talk about libkdcraw. Uh, it's a C++ interface around the DC raw binary used to decode raw picture files. I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm going to talk about DC RAW a little bit. DC RAW is not what this is. This is libk DC RAW. So this is building upon DC RAW. But DC RAW itself is a command written in C and uh, it, it parses RAW photo data. And if you aren't really sure what RAW photo, uh, a RAW photograph is, then I will attempt to explain. So when you take a picture with a camera that shoots RAW, it has to be a camera that that actually shoots in the raw format and and i say the raw format there's not just one raw format raw is more of an adjective it's just what kind of photograph is that it's it's a raw photo what does that mean well it means that there is not a or it, it is it betrays the fact that there's not a one-to-one ratio between the camera sensor, the thing recording the light levels and the color saturation of the of whatever you're taking a photograph of, there's not a one-to-one relationship between the camera sensors and the pixel that you eventually see drawn on your screen, when you ask to look at that photograph, because a camera sensor, it's not recording the luma value and the chroma value for R, G, and B all, all, all at once, all in in one sensor. That that it's one sensor for each value. I I I, I guess I'm not sure, but you know there there's more sensors than there are pixels in the end. So pixel, or, or rather those values that get recorded by the camera sensor, have to be combined to produce a pixel of a certain color and brightness for your screen. Before that happens, before that translation has happened, you have a RAW photograph. That's what RAW is. So DC RAW is an application that that looks at that raw sensor data and figures out how all of those bits and pieces go together in order to produce a, a picture for you on your screen. without. An application to combine to combine that data you wouldn't really see the photograph you would I don't know what you would see you'd see a bunch of binary data I guess so there's got to be something in there to translate this raw data this raw raw data um, into something like I don't know like a JPEG or a PNG or, or whatever into a viewable image i mean there are applications like dark table things like that they can display the raw photo like they, they know how to that they, they use dc raw or maybe libk dc raw and maybe the case of like uh k uh, no digicam um you know they, they they can display that for you um and i and i i don't know if there's an intermediary uh term for for when you're looking at that. I, I I guess there must be. But whatever that is, living in memory, there it is, on your screen, n- drawn onto uh, some, some window on your desktop, living in, in memory. And you can look at it that way in your Digicam or Darktable or whatever. Or you can export it as a photograph, like a JPEG or a PNG or a WebP or, or whatever format you prefer. Or you could save it as a RAW and then someone else on the other end in, needs to again have a raw parser so that they can look at, at at that data now the nice thing about raw data is that it is it is raw data it's 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 got all that data about a scene that you have photographed and nothing's been locked down you could you can run it you you can use dc raw or some other application to look at the data and it will that will give you a an interpretation of that data or you could you know write your own parser for raw and then you could see the photograph through the eyes of your own parser now what that would look like largely depends on how good of a programmer you are but you could do that and so it's you know, that it's raw data. Looking at it is not a destructive process. You can look at all that data all you want. Nothing's been lost. Obviously, when you do try to cram it into a, a format so that a lot of other people can see your raw photo easily, that's when you start losing data. Now, of course, you can export it, so you don't... You know, you still have your raw data. You have a copy of that. But I'm saying when you export it as a JPEG, for instance, let's go with JPEG because it's it's a fairly... It's a a very lossy format. So let's say you export it as JPEG, then you've you've thrown away a bunch of values, right? Because I mean, RAW has all the values that your digital camera could possibly use, and JPEG only has some I don't know million values possible. So you're translating it from everything to a very little, a relatively small bucket. And depending on how how much you're willing to lose when when exporting as a jpeg it it may be a very small bucket i mean uh, or or png you know where you can do an indexed png and only have like 256 web web safe colors in your PNG. Well, now you've lost quite a lot from your um, from your raw photograph, haven't you? But maybe that's that's okay. Because as long as your computer can approximate what the photograph is supposed to look like, then that's good enough. The weird thing is, and, and the minute, maybe this is why I like it so much, this topic. The weird thing is, once you start talking about, well, what, what does that photo really look like? You start to kind of realize how much perception matters on... on or, or interpretation matters on perception, I guess. Because you, you take a picture of a nice green field with a beautiful blue sky. And in its raw form, let's assume, hopefully, that your raw photo captures a lot of that blueness in the sky and a lot of the green in the in the grass and the, the dark shades that were being cast by that... Tree over there on the right and and all the the sparkles of the sunlight on the the surface of the pond over there on the left beautiful in its raw form it's also huge, and you have to send it to a bunch of people. you have to post it on your photo sharing uh website or whatever, and so you have to get it into a format that's a reasonable size and and reasonably well distributed, so people can just open a web browser and look at the photo without, I don't know, downloading it and running it through some kind of raw decoder. So you do that, and then it's a question of not really what what you took a picture of, of, but now it's a question of what you want your picture to represent, and there are trade-offs to be made. There are always trade-offs to be made, even in on a film camera. But in, in digital, I think especially, because digital only has relatively um, a narrow field of tolerance. At a certain point, that when when stuff gets really, really dark, it just the computer just has to quit trying to differentiate. You know, the seventy-nine percent dark from the seventy-eight percent dark like how do you how do you differentiate those two shades of of black well computers don't they just say uh ah, it's dark enough let's just paint it black and so it's just it it goes and and that's classically a problem area for computers is those really really deep shadows things like that computers very frequently if you look at a net video or something look in the shadows sometimes and, and you might be surprised at what you don't see or or the 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 artifacts that you do see and and the the same is true for the the white the, the hot spots the really white bright spots in a, in a photo a lot of in a digital photo a lot of times it's just a, it's it is it's just a white spot and if you were to see the same spot on, on in the raw photo or on film you would realize oh well there's all kinds of gradation in there that, that just got reduced to one big white blob within um, in, in in the translation. So that's something to think about, I guess, when you're photographing is that you're not necessarily always trying to reproduce exactly what you saw, because you're probably not going to be able to, but your job as a computer user becomes how can you express what you liked about what you saw and that that then compelled you to take that photograph it's it's an interesting concept so anyway that's enough about libkdcraw. raw i guess libkdcraw raw takes the 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 concepts and the principles of dc raw i guess and stuffs it into a library which dc raw does not do it explicitly says not going to bother doing that Um, in fact, there's a, an FAQ on the author's website where the author just says that, um, that doing library, you know, code in the library is, 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 difficult and messy and he just prefers to, um, to do the, the command that's. That's how he sees DC raw. So if you um, if you need DC raw within a, a KDE application, you can get it by using libk-dc-RAW, which is a C++ interface around DC raw. Which again, I, I'm pretty sure DC raw itself is in, in C uh, in yeah in its C code. But anyway, that's, um, that's libkdcraw. Very useful, very cool to think about how pictures and images are represented on computers. All right, let's talk about getting some coffee for real this time, and then we'll come back, take some listener email, finish up the show. <laughs> have coffee, you should also have coffee, maybe even a latte. But if not, that's okay. Any, any coffee will do. Uh, let's take some listener feedback. I got an email from Hacker Defo who very, very kindly <laughs> emailed me several times because I kept having trouble with, uh, some email addresses because I've had to kind of restructure a bunch of my email. And, um... In fact, my entire—I think my site structure in general is going to get restructured. That—that's the long-term goal. I have too many random websites out there that nobody goes to anyway. I just need to bring them into one domain and have things on dis, on in subdirectories. I really feel like for a while there, it just seemed like domain name purchasing was the thing to do, and I don't—I don't exactly know why that is. I—I I mean, there was never any idea in my brain of like oh i should get slacker media in case a an entity called slacker media arises and wants to buy the domain from me for a million dollars you know it wasn't it wasn't like an investment it was just like that would be fun and you don't really think about the long term maintenance of that and now i think about long term maintenance a lot more because it's it's been 10 years, and, and I just realized that I don't need to do that. I could just have one domain, and then have subdirectories on that domain. You know, like internet sites were designed. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm learning important lessons here. But anyway, um, Hacker Defo very kindly emailed me very, very patiently. And and we kind of, he actually helped me quite a lot figure out, um, you know, what needed to be worked on. So I really appreciate that. Okay, so Hacker Defo says, A couple of episodes ago, a few listeners went, uh, vented their anger and displeasure at System D. My view is that in a battle between usability and ideology, usability will always win the majority vote system D might not be great ideologically, but it brings so many use- usability features to the table. As long as system D is open source, I personally don't see too many issues with it. And for the folks who don't like the ideology aspect of system D, there are so many great alternatives out there: Void Linux, DevOne Linux, MX Linux, Antix Linux, Geeks Linux, Artix Linux, Salix Linux. ZenWalk, Linux, and, of course, good old Slackware, to name a few. Actually, to name nine, specifically, HackerDefo. Now, as to Systemd developer Linert Pottering, employed by Microsoft, I don't see anything evil or unprecedented there. The creator of GNOME, Miguel de Acasa, has also worked for Microsoft. Python creator Guido van Rossum has been employed at various stages by Google, Dropbox, and Microsoft. And, lately... I'd end up with a, uh, oh, and lastly, I I would like to end with a privacy-focused messenger application suggestion. It's called Session, and it's simply superb in my limited usage experiments. It's cross-platform, open source, and does not require a mobile number or email ID to get started. Give this one a go. GetSession.org. That is the URL being referenced here. GetSession.org dot org so that's g-e-t-s-e-s-s-i-o-n dot org and i have not tried this yet i have to admit um and i'll tell you why while session seems really really cool and i may check it out the the problem with chat applications is eternally that they're only as good as the People you are chatting with, and I have spent so much time getting people onto various chat platforms that I just I don't know that I personally have the the um the credit to get people to switch to follow me to yet another chat application. It's it's a real trick. It's a tricky. It's it, it is very tricky. And I, I I just I wish I remember back in like two thousand four, two thousand six, two thousand. Probably up till 2009, it seemed like there was almost a moment where where you could actually just use whatever chat application you wanted because the the big ones were using XMPP, Jabber, and and it it just all kind of worked out, and that was great. That was really nice. And then everyone wandered away from that, and now we are we're back to where we started. We've got dozens of different chat chat applications. We got dozens of different video conferencing applications and it's just so annoying it just really is it it just it's one of those things about technology where you just you, it it's not it, it is not pretty and w- especially with protocols like with open source the, the 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 easy mantra is that choice is ideal like the more choice you have the better like there's no problem when there's choice you, that's a good thing you want the diversity of 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 options but with protocols I feel like that's a different story protocols you yes great to have choice I I do still want the choice of protocols but I I also want the the front ends that talk pro- those protocols to to talk more than one protocol so if you've got an app applic- a chat application front end then let's Let's talk a lot of different protocols like Copete, and like um what's the other one the pigeon one uh, oh is it called pigeon it might be called pigeon i was thinking the, i was thinking lib purple but i, I actually pigeon is the front end so yeah like do that like that that's the way to bring it all together for me or or what is it rocket chat rocket chat it, it does a lot of different um protocols so i just wish that was that was a thing but of course and, and i mean obviously i've just listed three different projects whose goal is to do exactly that oh franz uh, is was another one um so that's four four different things that 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 strive to look across protocol and and bring all of those chat options together. And I, I just wish that was that was the default. I wish that would, would be something that everyone everyone would do. Um and, and that's the you know the importance of open protocols too. Because I mean if people have to reverse engineer the protocol for uh your Discord application or something, then that makes it a lot harder to, to just connect right to Discord or if someone has to write a bot, which I've had to do several times, write the bot for Discord so that it can pipe all of the messages to and from Element, uh, ma- you know, ma- Matrix, so you can bridge the two. It's just, it gets, it, it's, it's annoying, and and it, and it's annoying not just because it's mildly inconvenient, but it's annoying because there's a lot of um, rep- there's a lot of reinvention of the wheel, right? Where we're all writing these stupid bridges, or uh, all these application a- application developers are having to. Um, reverse engineer the same the same code it's just it's silly it feels inefficient it feels like a waste of our technological uh budget okay anyway back up to system d stuff so hacker defo says um i i liked this this thing that hacker defo said my view is that in a battle between usability and ideology usability will always win the majority vote i i think that's um that's a that's a gem right there i mean that's that's got to be right. It's, it's very, very true. Ideology versus usability. We've seen it time and time again. Usability is. I mean, to be to be fair, you know that that that's a dangerous quote because you could say, oh well, ideology versus usability. Usability. So therefore, uh, you know, the 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 reverse logic of that would be that therefore Microsoft Office is more usable than LibreOffice because. Microsoft Office has more installs than LibreOffice, I, I assume, I don't know. Um, and that would be, you know, I I think I would argue that that's probably not true at all. I mean, I don't, don't actually know. I haven't used Microsoft Office, but LibreOffice is quite usable, I have I have found. and And that's coming from someone who doesn't Use office. I didn't use office applications very frequently, and I've really just kind of taught myself the 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 wonders of LibreOffice over the the past couple of years, and loving it, absolutely loving it. So you can't, you you know, it, it's not. It isn't a super flexible statement, possibly, um, but I think it's an important statement because I, I I think there's a lot of truth there, and and I, I you know I don't know if System D for me personally even if this quote applies to System D for me. Personally, personally because once again I'm happy with either I'm I'm happy with system D I'm happy with no system D from my perspective it doesn't really make that much of a difference that said there's a lot of things that system D can do to make certain things really really usable the way that it manages containers is really really useful and yes you can you, you can do things to to help manage without systemd you can use other app other application a- applications you could you could install kubernetes and and orchestrate that way all of that is very very true but there are some really nice features in systemd whether or not that is more important than the ideology i don't know um, and and especially when the ideology, from a developer standpoint, I, I wonder how much from the developer standpoint, I wonder how much the ideology of no, well, this is what a Linux system looks like versus this is what you could you could have instead. I don't I I don't have the insight for you know why so many developers apparently seem to prefer system D. I mean, I, and I say that because so many. So many distributions have switched over to System D. And you could say, well, yeah, that's a corporate push, though. You know, like maybe this, this, this company that's done a lot of development in the system D has a lot of influence, and so we're going to push it into the into the other Linux distributions. But I mean, you can't tell me that Debian was influenced. Debian of all projects was influenced by some other company. I mean that's I mean by a company. like I just I don't buy that. I don't think Debian would have switched to system D if, if there wasn't a good reason for it. I, I guess I could be wrong, but that's just how I feel about it. And you can't tell me that um, that Ubuntu, would have switched to SystemD if there wasn't a good reason. Because Ubuntu, I mean, that's the company, or rather, that's the distribution. Canonical is the company that doesn't... They they don't make rational choices at all, ever. Like, that's just not something they're... they're that's not something Canonical does. I mean, I, could, I, I couldn't even list all the things that they've decided to go off on their own, in their own direction for. Even, and, and time after time... They, they fail they're what what mirror and um and unity and Ubuntu one and you know all the things that I usually list when I'm talking about Ubuntu they they, they just do whatever they feel like and and I don't feel like it's it's always rational I mean I, I really do I feel like a lot of times they're very obstinate and they do what they, they, they they try to do something, even if it's going to splinter the market, and then it doesn't work out for them, and they switch back to the thing. I mean, even System D, they avoided for for a while, and they were using whatever that service command is. I guess just System V, um, and and then finally they switched over to System D. So I don't know. I I'm I'm not convinced that that I I, I am I feel like there's got to be a there's got to be a a, a development driven reason for switching to System D. And again. I don't have the experience that low level of coming up with you know, why why I would or would not want system D. And the argument that the argument that it's it's outside of the correct way of structuring a Linux system, uh, while I get what Deep Geek, for instance, was saying, like where you have essentially your your kernel and then your user space. And those are the two components. And then system D comes in and sort of adds like this third component really. Like there's there's the kernel and then there's systemd and then there's your user space and i don't know that that's been my experience even when systemd has been a component of 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 a distribution because once again like you have to have an init system is it going to be systemd or is it going to be something else you have to make a choice i mean and and that's that's that like you have to have something running your init that that's that's got to be there and so what do you want to slot in now i will agree that that's a fake modularity because in practice, a lot of distributions have systemd as a dependency of like the whole user space, which I think is wrong. Like I personally, I think that's a bug with package manager. I think that if you're going to have systemd, great, that's fine. But have it have it be more like a meta package of an init system. And you could put in systemd or uh, what is it? Ninit or meta. Or minute or whatever that other one was, although maybe both of those two are gone, OpenRC, uh, you know, whatever system you want to slot in there as your init system. So, but as far as I know, and I could be wrong, but I don't think that's a systemd bug. I think that's a package management, uh, you know, structure of 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 how a distribution is built bug, which I would, I, I absolutely argue that that should not be the case. Like you should be able to remove systemd and still have a working system. I mean, as long as you put something else, you know, a required init package in its place, you should have a working Uh, distribution but if you could if you can show me that that's not possible with system d then yeah i'd be i'd be keen I'd, i'd be keen on seeing that But as far as I know, that is possible. You can just, you can swap that out still. I mean, distributions are doing it today. It's just that a lot of the distributions happen to have the systemd package, you know, the deb or the RPM or whatever, marked as a, you know, if this gets uninstalled, then uninstall everything else. And that's just silly. Okay, anyway, that's systemd. I acknowledge that this is a conversation that that probably nobody else is talking about. I'm just glad that this is a civil conversation. Like I said, in the previous episode of the episode before that this was the most probably lucid system d conversation i've ever had uh and that has been super refreshing because at at one point in its history i do not feel like there were there there you you just couldn't have a rational conversation about it people were just so emotional about it which you know i i guess i get i don't know i'm not sure that i do get honestly i don't I don't know that I get quite that emotionally caught up in in something like that but I mean I'm sure I do over something you know anyway uh lib kde games that's the next and last package of this episode it contains common code and data for many kde games k game clock k game pop up item k game rendered item k game rendered object item k game k g theme KG theme provider KG theme selector I'm a, I'm a, the high score I'm I'm highlighting some of these because these are really you know especially theme I mean that's such an easy one you open up any KDE game practically and and you know what themes are going to be available you know you and you know where to get them and you you choose the egyptian one or you choose the default one and there they are they they're right there and and then you you beat the game or you you know you you play the game uh and and you get a high score and it goes into the little high score table all of these things are are pretty familiar if you've played any number of of the KDE games as I've done throughout this um, exploration of the KDE software set in Slackware and and that kind of um, that kind of Uh, Unification. I I keep saying unification, but I think there's another word. Oh, integration, I guess. But it really is, I guess, unification, because it's not really integration. It's not like the games are integrated with one another. They just happen to have a unified set of features. And it makes it feel very familiar. Even if you've not played the game, you generally know where you can find stuff or what to expect and so on. And then as a developer, you have a bunch of tools here that you don't have to work on you know that there's a high score widget. It's right there in K high score. You know that there's a sound set that you could use. It's right there, K sound. Uh, The themes and how to get new themes and to uh, select a theme and and all of that other stuff. It's it's all here in libkde games. It's no surprise. I mean, these are libraries. We're going to be in lib for a while here in the KDE section. So these are all libraries that provide functionality for the developers. This is classic developer stuff and it's it's great stuff if you're going to start writing software for KDE this would be one of your first stops you know the this these libraries this is the stuff providing all of the cool little tools that you're going to want to use in your application so that you don't have to reinvent a bunch of wheels. And the amount of these libraries, the amount of code that they just gift to each developer, in, in some cases is huge. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost, it's almost embarrassing in some cases. I mean, I've, I've definitely written enough hacked together programs to know that you can, you know, with the right set of libraries, it, it's almost like you're not writing the application anymore. You're just stringing someone else's code together. And that's okay. It's open source. It's supposed to work like that. In fact, I dare say, as I've hinted several times in the past, I dare say it should be more like that. Like, I don't know how that's going to happen, uh, but but that's what I would like. Like, I, I don't... I'm not precious about programming, personally. Um, I think there's a lot of space for for components to exist and to get just strung together in the play, in, in the way that a user wants them to get strung together i mean that was after all the original idea of the unix terminal the pi- linux pipe or U- unix pipes the pipe construct that was the idea. Let's pipe a, a list function into the line count function, and then we can get the total of lines contained in the, in this, or how many files there are in this directory. Let's pipe the cat function out to the uh, function for a line count, and then we can get a, a number for how many lines there are in this file, and so on. So, I mean, people sort of quote-unquote programmed all kinds of cool things using pipes and that's just stringing other people's code together so let's do that for everything else like why 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 should it be difficult for someone to to quickly whip up a a digital card deck like i just want I, want I want i want a thing that shows me the the face of a card in a deck so that i can draw cards and and get Ra- random objects on my screen uh, a digital deck of cards obviously why should that be any harder than sort of describing what you want to the computer more or less and then just making it happen you shouldn't have to know about refresh rates and what toolkit you're you're going to use and what codec the images are 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 encoded as what what, what format they're encoded as and so on it should just it should just be you shouldn't have to program the button and what uh what function it calls there should just it should just should just be able to sort of like i don't know drag and drop or something and i know there are applications that do that i'm just saying it should be that easy it should, really should it should be that easy to program today in the modern computer world it should be so easy to program and it's not and these libraries don't make it that easy but that's the kind of thing that i think we should all be shooting for is like what a, a an experienced developer sees when they see these libraries that's what i would love for us to all to see at some point when we're, when we sit down to program. Anyway, those are my thoughts on programming. Completely unsolicited. Thank you very much for listening to my show this week. I will go have some more coffee and then I'll be back next week for more software from the KDE software set of Slackware 15. Talk to you then. any more doubt of it. We've won.